Hi loves, welcome back to Stripped. I'm so, 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 so stoked about who I have on the line right now. She is a fellow podcaster. She is a speaker. She is a writer. She is a community woman. She's She's got this incredible podcast called Shameless Mom. She's doing so many amazing things. Sarah, welcome to my show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. Thank you. Oh, and I forgot to mention, you're also um, a community leader, right? Yeah. We, yeah. So my show, the Shameless Mom Academy, we have a big community of, we have multiple levels of our community, but yeah. So I lead a few different communities and it's really, really fun to lead communities of moms. I love it. Yeah. Right. The best kind. That's amazing. Yes. Well, thank you for being here. Thank and you. I mean, I want to, I have so many questions for you, but before we dive in, I would just love for you to fill my audience in a little bit of, you know, who Sarah Dean is, kind of where you started, you know, you're a mama now, I'm almost seven-year-old, like give us, a, give us a little bit before we get into it. Sure. So my, um, I, so I have a seven-year-old, I live in Seattle, I'm married, I have a dog who's old and stinky, we call her, <laughs> we call her Granny Danny on Instagram, um, so we have um, a pr- very full life over here, and I work pretty exclusively with moms these days. Many of them are business owners um, or aspiring business owners. And this all kind of came out of my own experience in motherhood. I, when I had my son, I owned a gym and I kind of realized after I had him that the gym I built was no longer in alignment with my core values at a certain point. I was like, I built this whole business around helping women shrink their bodies and once I became a mom, I was like, that's so insignificant relative to helping moms and women take up space and step into their power and shine over shrink. And so um, I started the podcast as a passion project and it's just grown since then. I mean, I've put in a lot of hard work, but it's also grown because women need this message and moms need this message about rebuilding your identity after motherhood to really um, step into your power and not make your whole life about your kids and your partner. And so that's how I got here. And that's what I'm doing now. So well said. And that resonates with me so much, especially with being a new mama of a 16 and a half month old. Like I am still so finding that, you know, between, oh, hold on. So I was saying that so resonates with me because I am, you know, a new mama. I have a 16 and a half month old. You know, I'm still really, truly finding this quote unquote word called balance and trying to not make it all about Amelia Ray and focus on myself and give back to my husband and do all these things. And it's very intimidating and very hard. And I appreciate you, you know, sharing that like, it is so important to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It took me three years to like begin to figure it out. And I also, I don't know if you've gone through this, you might still be going through this. I went through this whole entire first year of my son's life thinking like, when is it going to go back to normal? And I thought that my son could take up just this like tiny little fraction of my life and then everything else would stay the same. And I didn't realize that like he became my whole life and everything else got really, really tiny. And that wasn't what I expected or prepared for. And so it, was traumatic to like rework it all with him in the middle of it all. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, and I, it's funny, like, and I feel like for me, I'm trying to figure out how I put her into more of my life. And I realize that it's like too much and I need to like reel it in and pull it back. (laughs) And even though like I'm obsessed with her, like not everyone is and like, you know what I mean? And like, she's cute as can be, don't get me wrong. And like, everyone loves her personality, but then the day, like, 
everyone still likes to know that they're themselves or they have a friend or, you know, whatever it may be. And I'm trying to like find, you know, this like balance and ebbs and flows of like, okay, you know, I have her in this much of my life, but then it's okay to not have her be with this. And it, you know, it kind of freaks me out to be honest. Oh my gosh. No, but so this is the thing that happens. I actually had this really enlightening conversation with a woman a couple of years ago, right? The podcast, I probably had been in the shame, running the shameless mom Academy for about a year at the time. And this mom came to me and she wanted to work together. She had two sons who were in their twenties and the second one was just moving out of the house. And she was like, I don't even know what my favorite food is because I have made dinner for my family for over 20 years, basically since she had gotten married. So like 25 years prior um, and never thought about what I really like. And she's like, my identity at this point is so compromised and stifled that I don't even know what I want to have for dinner if I'm given the choice to choose on my own. And I was like, oh my gosh, this woman is not alone. And also that like, that's the direction that we could all be going in if we're not conscientious about building a life outside of our kids. And so, yes, they infiltrate everything, but also we can build something that's beyond them and exclusive without them too. And I think that's really, really important that we have an identity outside of marriage, motherhood, and those areas of our lives. Oh, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. And as someone who suffered from pretty heavy postpartum depression, you know, that really resonates with me because I didn't realize it so much of my postpartum depression came from the fact that I truly felt like I lost my identity. I lost Allie. I, you know, literally turned to my husband and said, like, I feel like I'm mourning the death of me. Like, I don't know who I am. And he was just, whoa, what? You know? And I was just like, no, that's how I feel. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm madly in love with my daughter. And like, I love being a mom, but like, I guess I'll just be a mom. Like that's literally, and there's nothing wrong with just being a mom. But for me, being a woman who has always been an entrepreneur, been, you know, on camera, done all these things. It was like, wait, you're just going to like shelve everything. And that was how I felt. I just felt like, well, yeah, like that identity's over. And now this is my new identity. And I felt like so lost. So what you're saying just like so heavily resonates with me to my core. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think it's more common than not. I remember being with my husband out on a date night when my son was about 18 months old and something happened. We were like, I think we were in target or something like we were shopping somewhere running errands. It was not anything super fun or exciting, (laughs) but something happened and we both started laughing really hard. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is like fun. Sarah is coming back. And I have not felt this version of myself or shared this version with my husband since before Vinny was born. Like it's been 18 months since I laughed this freely and holy cow, that's not okay. <laughs> I right. need to be able to find that part of, part of my personality that's like fun and carefree and like wants to just go like run around Target and be ridiculous and enjoy myself rather than always trying to like figure out the next 37 steps of things that I need to do in terms of plan- making baby food and planning childcare and whatever. Right. Yeah, it's so, so true. And how did you know? I'm so curious. Like when you, was it just the laughter? Like, how did you know you kind of like started feeling yourself again when you were laughing, like, you know, with your husband at Target? I think for me, it happened in kind of incremental steps. And so there was that moment in Target was just like definitely something that stood out and it really stuck with me. And then there was a few other times I started talking more openly on social media about the things that had been really hard about motherhood. And so, and I probably started doing this as my son approached his first birthday. And so I talked about like nursing for me was awful. And so I talked about that on social media after I was kind of through the whole thing. And I talked about other parts of motherhood just being really hard. And as I did that, and I shared really openly about what's really hard and what really sucks and how, you know, I 
cry more than I laugh a lot of days. And, and then also told funny stories about like just how ridiculous, because like on any given day in motherhood, the level of ridiculousness is high. Um, and the more I yes. started sharing that, the more it resonated with people and people were saying like, you need to write a book and you need to, one woman at one point was like, you need to have a, t- a talk show. And I was like, that all sounds really hard. But there's all these, I was actually listening because I had my gym. I was listening to these entrepreneurial podcasts run by men who were single without kids. And I was like, if these dudes can do like, these are not like no offense to these guys, but they're not that smart. They're not that brilliant. They're definitely not that funny or witty. If they can build businesses around these shows and just talk in the way that they're talking about their own experiences, I can do that too. And so I really looked at like I'm starting to drop these little um, nuggets about my own experience that people are responding to. And that's feeling really good. And I really tapped into what was feeling good. So recognizing like when I started laughing and that felt good. And when I shared a story and people were like, oh my gosh, me too. I've totally been there. That all felt really good to me. And so I started to get a little bit of confidence and clarity around how I could, rather than trying to go back to who I was before, how I could build a new version of myself. And that felt so exciting. And so that's kind of how it played out slowly over time. Um, but then ended up becoming a a stepping off point for me to just build something completely new, which I know you've done too, by adding the podcast and and yeah. And I love that you said that Sarah, because it's true. That's how I feel. It's like, I almost feel like in a way with the whole parts of depression and motherhood, like Allie and old Allie did die, but this like new Allie emerged and it's like even better. It's like, I almost feel like almost like a young self again, even though that's so crazy because I'm more tired than I've ever been in my life. (laughs) And it's like this whole new side of me. And I'm like, wow, I'm really loving this new version of myself and everyone around me is saying the same. And it's just so wild that you say that because that's exactly how I feel. Like truly I did kind of lose the old alley, but I'm in this new phase and this new season and whatever you want to call it. And this whole new journey of me. And I'm like rediscovering myself on a whole new level. Yeah. I think that absolutely happens. And I would love it if we could, if that could be the known trajectory that instead of, uh, instead of women grieving their old lives and think and, and being, worried about like, when do things go back to normal or, or how is this going to look if we just all knew that, oh, nothing's going to go back to normal and nothing's ever going to be the same. And also you get to build something better and you have, and you can build whatever you want. And so that there's like excitement around that and there's freedom around it and there's power around it. And that would have felt really differently to me. And I didn't see other people doing that, or I didn't have, that just wasn't on my radar that I should just be prepared for this to take over my whole life and reshape my whole life, but in a good way. So instead I was kind of, I was like, like you said, this part of myself had died and I was just stuck in mourning that figuring out like, well, now that the best parts of me are gone, like what now, instead of looking like, exactly like what's next, I get to build something way better now. (laughs) You're right. It's almost like, it's, it's almost like, like, you know, you go into this whole new phase and you get to like, you know, make something new and better. And it's like, you almost kind of get, I feel like you kind of get like a second chance at life in a new way. Like you're like, Oh my gosh, I see life so differently. Like you literally have this motherhood lens everything changes, but it's like, if you allow it to, like you are saying, and you see it for the better and for the positive and take the good with the bad, you really can rebuild and restructure and be stronger for it. 
Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, seeing it as an opportunity rather than an obstacle, um, I think is is really, really huge. And I think that that was so not on my radar. And oh, same. I, I wish that someone would, had, would have told me like, no, it's going to be way better. Just wait. Right. Um, exactly. Or, or had said like, here's a, like, here's a template to how you can. Exactly. Well, and that's kind of how you have like your famous mom community, which is yeah, like perfect yeah. segue. So I wanted to ask you with like, like you talk about how powerful and purposeful ways to manage the mental load of motherhood please do share because mama is struggling. <laughs> so the, I mean, for anyone listening who has kids, you know that the mental load is massive. And one of the things that is so deceiving about motherhood is that no one tells you that when you take on a child, your whole role in the family, like it, your role in the family doesn't just incorporate motherhood. You now are the family manager in most cases. There are certainly exceptions, but in most heterosexual relationships or households, you become that the mom becomes the household manager. Oh, and you're so, the CEO of your household right, and right. everything else for sure. Right. So you have this sense, like I had the sense like, okay, I'm going to nurse this baby and then he's going to sleep and I'm going to work. And like, that'll just be our life for like the first year. <laughs> I had no idea that like, I was going to have to do 1 million other things that would consume the entire day around laundry and pumping and cleaning the pump. And then even as he got older, like packing a diaper bag and planning the childcare. And now that he's in school, packing the lunches and managing the schedule and managing sports practice, like all the things all the time all come down typically. And again, there's exceptions to this, but that typically comes down onto the mom. And it's often because we just do it. And so, and I think it becomes, I think it stems from, when your baby is so completely dependent on you and they're so tiny that you just step into that role. Like if you're the only person that can nurse your baby and you're exclusively breastfeeding, which I think many moms do, you automatically take on a lot and you get really conditioned to doing that from the get go. And so you don't even recognize after a period of time that you have made all of the decisions in your child's upbringing in the first six months or so, because it's just, you've been the one holding the baby for like 80% of the time because you were feeding it. Um, Exactly. Or you're the one that had time off work too. So because much, right. To yourself, because you're, like you said, you're nursing. That's like me. I'm still, I'm still nursing. I mean, not as much as I used to, but right. it's like you do you give yourself when you're in that moment. Oh yeah. And you get really conditioned to doing that without thinking about it. And so what can happen over time is you get really resentful and annoyed because that your partner is, <laughs> I mean, we've definitely had this where my husband does bedtime. It takes him like five minutes to do bedtime. And the whole time he's doing bedtime, I'm like doing laundry, cleaning the kitchen, making the lunch for the next day. Like I have 30 minutes of chores minimum while he's doing bedtime on the nights that I do bedtime. He's like sitting on the couch watching TV. And then I do the whole bedtime thing. And then I do the kitchen and the lunch and the like planning for the next day and all these things. And so we had to finally have this conversation around like, wait a minute, one of us does bedtime and the other person does all these other tasks. It doesn't right. It's not automatically my job. And so managing the mother load really is about looking at equity in your relationship and where are you de um, delegating and designating work to other people. And women tend to be really bad at that. And we become, there's a whole um, title around this called maternal gatekeeping, where we like to be the gatekeepers of all the information and all the data and all the things because it keeps us in control and it keeps us in power. But then we get resentful that we're doing all the things. Well, it's usually because we've set that up. It's not in, in a lot of cases, our partners are not trying to be lazy. 
not saying that some of them aren't like <laughs> maybe there's a few that are, but most, for the most part, our partners want to be helpful and supportive. You have to give them the opportunity. You have to let them know what is needed. If you give them nothing to do, they don't know. They don't know that you're dying inside. Like I know for me, there's times when I've been loading the dishwasher and I'm like making sure I bang every single dish really loud. Oh yes. To be like, do you even hear that I am here loading the dishwasher and you are not? <laughs> yes. You're like, let me make sure you're aware of this. Yes. Right. So we get super passive aggressive and that's on us. That's not our partner's fault. And I'm not at all saying that like men can't be more pro proactive and step up. There's certainly a ton of space for that, but there's definitely this level of maternal gatekeeping where we, I call it mommy martyrdom where we're like, Oh no, I got it. It's fine. And then after a certain point, like you hate your marriage, can't stand your partner half the time, right? Exhausting you. So we really have to look at what are all the roles, all the things that need to be done in a household and how can you delegate some of that? And then as your kids get older, I mean, my seven-year-old, if the dishwasher needs to be emptied, he's helping with that. And he's been helping since he was like four with the laundry. He helps with that. So it's not just me doing all the things. And I don't want him to see me doing all the things because I don't want him to think that in a household that mommy just does everything. I don't think that's healthy. He needs to see his dad doing some of this stuff. He needs to be involved in it himself. So I think that that's part of managing the mother load is really giving up some of the power and some of the control. Yeah. And I think that that like needs to seriously be like put in bold somewhere because it's like, we don't realize, and you just really made me think about like how controlling I can be and how I don't release even when I should to be like, oh no, you can do this because I do want to be like, I'm handling this. I'm handling this. I'm handling that. I'm the CEO of my household. I'm the CEO of my business. I do this. I do that. But it's like, then you burn out and you break down and you go, oh yeah, I do resent you. And I'm annoyed and I'm not in a good mood. And then you're like, look at yourself and you're annoyed at them. But like you said, they don't know, especially males. I mean, right. you got to communicate everything. Right. Right. Yeah. And again, I think that's really important that we give up some of that power or that we fully own. Like I want to be a control freak. I'm going to be a control freak. And then you don't get, <laughs> then you don't get the right to be re resentful about it. Like you can't have it both ways. This is, uh, hey mom, mom, are you listening? My mom, <laughs> she is like, my mom is like the best mom ever, but she is such a control freak even to like this day. And it's like so funny because I'll say to her like, mom, it's okay. Like, just like, go. Oh. and she's like, no, no, no. I, I, it is like, that's her personality. So I completely right. agree with you. It's like, own it one way or another. Totally funny. Yeah. And my mom is like that and I'm like that. And so I have to recognize and own it. So like, if I tell my husband, this has come up when he's made lunches before, if he's going to make lunch, I have to be okay with it being super weird sometimes and not going back and fixing it because it right. doesn't do anyone any service for me to go back and be like, Oh, but he put like too much chicken, <laughs> which literally I used to do. Like he would make a lunch and then I would go check it. And that's, oh, that's hilarious. It's totally degrading to his contribution to the family. It's also like he feel there's always enough food in there. It doesn't matter if there's like a little extra, I mean, his ratios of everything are hilarious to me, but it also doesn't matter if one day a week, my kid has like way more crackers than vegetables. It, it doesn't matter. And so right. you have to let some of those things go for the greater good of the family, the relationship and for trusting your partner and not degrading their value and the way that they can contribute because it does become insulting and offensive. If you ask them to do something and then you don't trust them to actually do it. And you're constantly checking on them and following through or following up to make sure that they did it to your standards. Right. And, and I, that like really resonates with me because I'm learning that like when he puts her to bed some nights, like 
he does things a little bit differently. And I used to be like, no, 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 don't don't and, and I've had to start to like pull back and be like, yeah. okay, this is the way he puts her to bed. And yep. like, he still stays in routine, but like, it's not exactly how I put her to bed, but like, you know what? She's still getting to brush her teeth. She's still, you know, getting her water. She's still getting her sahe oil for, you know, soothing. Like, but it's like, I get the same way. Like, I'm like, don't forget this. Don't forget that. Or like when he feeds her, I'm like, she had what? And he's like, well, she had this too. And I'm like, okay. And I'm starting to bite my tongue because I'm realizing like, he's trying really hard to do more and right. I'm making him feel bad for it. Right. Right. Yeah. And I do that. I mean, that's like I said at the beginning, it takes my husband five minutes to bed to do bedtime and it takes me like minimum 20, sometimes 30. So I'm like, did you guys like read it all? And he's like, oh yeah, we read. I'm like, what, like three sentences? Like what did you read? <laughs> and so again, it's just like, okay, fine. Like it's done. I didn't have to do it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And it's like kind of like surrendering. Right. But that's yes. hard. For yes. all of us. And I'm learning for me as a new mama that motherhood is seriously so much surrendering and I am slowly learning how to do it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I tend to attract high achieving perfectionistic kind of type A kind of moms and women in my life. And so I think that surrendering is just something that's really hard for us. Oh, yeah. Um, we like to be in charge of it all and we like to control it all. And we definitely think our way is the best way. And it's a really good life lesson to practice surrendering. And it's a great thing to model to our kids. And it's a great way to be able to create space and joy for us to build another other aspects of our identity. Like if I can give up doing bedtime every night, or if I can be out of the house a couple nights a week and have my husband have that time to have a super messy dinner of chicken nuggets and French fries or whatever, just total crap food. And I can get out and have, have friends with, or have time with girlfriends or get out and work by myself at a, at a restaurant for a couple hours. Um, and just have that time. That's just for me. That's really high value. And so we have to look at what the trade-off is and it's often more than worth it. Even if the a partner or another caretaker wouldn't do something as well as you. Right. Yeah, and, I, I, and I shouldn't even say as well as you. Just, they wouldn't do it the same as you. Right. Yeah. I see. And I'm the same way, like as well as you, I get it though. Like it's how you feel. I understand. Like there's nothing wrong with that, you know? Right. Right. It's like, it, it's again, it's a control in us. And I think like you said, how you attract, like, it's funny. I don't think I'm type A, but the more people I attract to like you, the more I'm like, oh, I am so much more type A than I realize. You know what I mean? It's like, right, right. it's so funny. And it's like, I don't look at myself as controlling, but yet everyone else around me is like, are you kidding? You know, it's funny. Right. It's, it is funny. If you ever do any like personality types or anything, or I just recently did the Enneagram for the first time. Uh-huh. And like I looked, are you familiar with the Enneagram yeah, at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But tell, tell my audience about it. Okay. So it's a personal, I'm not super familiar. So I can't speak depth in depth about it, but it's a, basically a personality type and you go through, there's nine different types. Um, and so as I started reading through it, I was like, oh, I'm definitely a two, which is the giver. So I was like, obviously I'm a two. I'm such a giver. Like, and this was like the one that felt really good to me to be able to tell everyone. And then I started reading through and I took the test and didn't get quite the, so I got the results back and it said that I might be a two, but it was unclear or something. So I was like, okay, I'm going to read these descriptions more. And then I started reading through the description for one. And I was like, and it even said at the beginning of the thing I was reading, it was like, you're going to resonate with one of these. And it's going to be like a sucker punch to the gut. Cause you're going to resonate with the bad parts of the character of the personality type. And that's typically when you realize what your number is where you're like, Oh shoot. Like my weak spots are this is really hitting home for my weak spots and this might be my number. So I was reading through it. I'm reading through a number one, which is the perfectionist. And I was like, holy cow, I'm totally a perfectionist. And not because it's like 
a good thing, but because of all the ways that I try to control my life and the people around me and how I can't let things go. And as I'm reading through this, I was like, no, like, please don't be that person. And then I was like, I think I'm totally that person. Like, I want to be the giver. I want to be a two. I'm pretty sure I'm a one. (laughs) So I think, um, kind of dialing in and getting to know like your, what your personality type is. I also am really into Myers-Briggs and knowing where you, what, where you, how you react to the world around you, how you engage with the world around you, how you give and receive information, what lights you up. I think just understanding all that is so valuable because then you know what your blind spots are, you know. So now I know that if I'm a perfectionist, if I'm a one on the Enneagram, it means I'm really critical of other people doing their work. So I'm now it makes sense that I'm critical when my husband does stuff around the house and I'm like, oh, but I wouldn't quite do it that way. So now I can recognize, oh, that's me being a one and I need to step off and let him do his thing and not be judgy and not be hard on him because I'm a perfectionist. Like that's, it's not my job to make him be perfect too. Right. That's really helpful. It's helpful to know these things about yourself <laughs> and know like, oh, maybe you are kind of perfectionistic or type A or controlling. Um, Cause then you can work around that and, and it doesn't have to become something where you're, where it da- can be damaging to your relationships. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, I love that you kind of like check in and you're like, all right, so this is what's about me. And like, there's nothing wrong with that, but like, this is me. So it's like, right. this is what I can pay attention to. And you know, th- this is what I could maybe do better or improve on because I know this is about me. So I think that's like really cool. And it's good for others to know, because like, again, all of us don't like to look at ourselves. We don't ever want to feel like anything is wrong or we're doing something different or anything. So it's important to be able, like you said, for something like that kind of personality test to be like, okay, it's not about like what's wrong and right. It's about like who I am. Right. Right. Yeah. Just who I, who I was born to be right. <laughs> and, and how can I be the best version of that person? Which I do love that about the Enneagram too, is it's like, okay, so this is what, this is where you're going to struggle. So here's mm-hmm. what you can look out for. Yeah. I I love that. And so I was going to say like that so goes along with my kind of one of my next questions on one of the topics you speak on, which is about, you know, your secrets of cultivating courage and confidence and abundance. I would love to kind of play off of what you're saying, Sarah, of like how you kind of found out, you know, that about yourself and you're like, Ooh, I'm a one like that. And this is that about that about me and all these different, you know, levels of yourself. How do you kind of take that and then cultivate that courage for yourself and that confidence and that abundance? So a lot of, I have a very firm belief that anyone can be Oprah. And so most of us look at people in the world, in celebrity culture, in, you know, people along the lines of Oprah or Brene Brown or whoever your kind of idol might be, or someone who you think has done really great things. And we think, oh, like they've done that. And because they've done that, first of all, they're way more qualified than me. And second of all, it's already been done and no one else can do it to that degree again. And I think that we do ourselves such a disservice when we, when we look, so part of it's comparison trap when we compare ourselves to other people, but when we look to other people and think that they have something that we don't have. And so, um, I think that we need to recognize that we are, that nobody is special. Oprah is not special. And a lot of people would strongly disagree with that. Oprah has unique gifts and talents that she has leveraged in brilliant ways And every single person has unique gifts and talents that they are just as capable of leveraging in, in, in in ways to build a business, get on stages, write books, whatever they want to do. So Oprah was not born with a, with like special 
anything special that qualified her to be where she's at today. And one of the things that women really struggle with is qualifying themselves. And so I think one of the things you can look at, which must many of us dismiss is looking at how have, how has your role in motherhood qualified you for bigger roles in other areas of your life? And so there's actually research around how motherhood prepares you to be a CEO because you're already the CEO of a household. Right. And you're already like, I joke that, you know, a mom with two kids under the age of five could negotiate a Middle Eastern peace treaty because <laughs> of the constant negotiating you're doing in your household. They could organize, you know, massive pro, uh, uh, program management positions because of the massive amount of program management you are doing in your household. And so I think that we often look at our roles in motherhood as something that makes us smaller or that we have to like step back from different areas of our life when really, the things we've gone through in motherhood qualify us to be, to do much bigger things and to be in much bigger spaces. If we choose to look at it that way, we choose to frame it that way. So when it comes to cultivating courage and confidence, it's really looking at what are all the hard things I've gone through and how can I leverage that moving forward? So if you've had four kids in six years, holy cow, you are so qualified to multitask, to lead, to negotiate, to operate on very little sleep with very few resources. Like there's so many things that you're qualified to do. So really recognizing what situations you've been through that actually, if you look at them from a courage standpoint, automatically qualify you. I recently had in my membership community, I had everyone make a list of all the times they've been courageous in their life. And when they wrote out these lists, it completely changed their perspective on every, on their entire lives. And they were able to look at, wow, I've already done all these things. And people had massive things on their list, like surviving abuse, surviving divorce, having, you know, a parent die, having a baby die, horrible, challenging ways that they've had to show up in courage over the course of their lives. And when they looked at those lists, they were like, wow, I had had never looked at this as a collection of um, ways that I built courage in my life and how that could position me to move forward in confidence to go after anything that I want. And so I think that we need to really give ourselves credit for what we are doing, for what we have previously done and use that as a stepping off point to step forward in confidence and to take more courageous action and automatically qualify ourselves for what we want to do based on what we've already done versus looking and seeing like, well, Oprah already did it. So I may as well not try. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think that's so important to say, because again, like you said, Oprah, whoever is your like, oh my God, it's like, if you really also do the research on them, you know, they had many, many, many hardships before they hit that moment. And it's like, people have this thought in their mind, especially with social media, that everything's an overnight success. I mean, even for me, and I'm nowhere near an Oprah level and people will be like, you know, oh my gosh, you're doing this and you're doing that. And I saw you on national television and it's like, yes. And I work so damn hard for it. And I continue to, but like, that doesn't change anything. And that doesn't mean that you also can't be at that level. Like, like, and I love that you said that because it's like, it's about you. It's about you being uniquely you and pushing forward and being able to cultivate that courage. And like, I think what you said is so inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. It really is about yourself. And I think that there, I think social media can be so dangerous for comparison. And I find this happening to me all the time. I'll see someone else who works in a similar field to me doing something really big. And immediately I'll be like, Oh, I'm not working hard enough. (laughs) And so, and when I was a gym owner and in the fitness industry, I would on social media, see people who were building their businesses to be bigger than mine or orange theory would open up. And I'd be like, Oh, orange theory is here. Like now my business is going to be destroyed. (laughs) Have these like, 
I think social media can, can rather than being inspirational as many people claim it to be, I think it can actually really crush our spirits. And so like I, after I had my son, I stopped following all fitness people. I was like, I don't want to see anyone with a six pack. That is not inspiring to me. It actually makes me feel worse about myself. I don't want to see guys talking about fitness at all. I don't want to see any dudes talking about fitness. I actually find it to be completely offensive and insulting to hear dudes in their twenties talking about how women can lose baby weight. So I totally filtered all my social media and I add in, I took out all my fitness stuff. I put in all people in the body positive community. I sent, and then I added a bunch of people doing stuff in leadership so that when I was on social media, it was always about feeling better about um, the hopeful and positive directions that I could be moving in rather than comparing myself to other people who were in places that I didn't think I could ever attain. And that was a huge shift for me. And I continually do that. If I'm scrolling and I see something that just gives me that like little feeling of my gut of like, Oh, that's making me feel worse instead of better unfollow unsubscribe, like unfriend all day long, because it doesn't, it's not productive for us to just look at other people's stuff and have it make us feel less than. Right. And I, I love that you said that because again, With my postpartum depression, I experienced so much of that and the comparison of what you're sharing. And we don't realize that we do compare, you know, as a society, we compare and then social media makes it so much easier to compare. And then you don't realize, like you said, it's like this literally, it's like death of your soul when you're comparing. And then it's like, you don't realize you're literally what you just said resonated with me so much. And I literally just clicked and I had this little epiphany when you were saying about how you would like look at things that be posted and you'd be like, Oh, I'm not working hard enough. I've had the same moments. And I realize sometimes I use social media as like this, like barometer for checking in with yes. like, what, why are you totally, doing this? Totally. We like invite ourselves into this trap of like, yeah. I'm going to get on Instagram and see what, especially on a day where you're not feeling great. You're like, I'm just going to get on Instagram and mindlessly scroll and then let myself feel worse to be like, Oh, well I'm having a crappy day, but look at all these other things that these people are doing really, really well, which is only going to make me feel worse on a day that I'm feeling bad. Yes. Exactly. And it's like you, and you, and you just go down like this rabbit hole and, and, you know, and I love that you said, like you took stuff out and you re, you know, refed it and, you know, added and changed and tweaked because I've done the same. I think it's so important because since we are on social media so much and part of like yours and my job is like being on there and many others. And it's like, you do consume everything. Like you consume, whether you want to consume, you are consuming. So it's like really important that you consume good stuff. So I think that's a great tip that you just shared of like, going through and finding like what is triggering you and get rid of it and then find what you like are loving or what you're wanting more of and like bring it in and like amplify it. I think that's right. Right. And I think there's a great opportunity right now for passive learning outside of social media. And so to get off of social media, which often can instill fear and like scarcity and really small mindset, like making us feel bad about ourselves. There's so many great ways with podcasts and audiobooks to just like have things on in the background that absolutely light up and fuel your mind. And so I do this all the time. Like I always have audiobooks going if I'm making dinner, I have if I'm doing laundry, it's either a podcast or an audiobook and something that's lifting me up, which is typically the opposite of what social media does for people. Right. And so 
looking at how can you like passively be fueling yourself, um, I think can be so powerful in comparison to like <laughs> passively, you know, downgrading or degrading yourself on a regular basis. Right. No, straight up. And I mean, like, like good for you for saying it. Cause I think a lot of people are afraid to share that. And this is, this is another perfect question I have for you. You told me when we talked before you came on that you're all about how to stop shrinking and start shining in every aspect of your life. I think this is like, perfect to talk about from what you're saying. So could you give us like some gems about, you know, how you feel you do that and how you help others do the same? Yeah. Oh, this is such a good, I love talking about this. So one of the things I actually just did an episode about this. Um, one of the things that women often feel really uncomfortable with is we get, we worry about outshining others or that if we shine, someone else will be uncomfortable. And so the context in which we often see this can be in family context where we think like, oh, well, if I'm super successful, my parents who never saw a great level of success might be threatened by me or my sibling who isn't as successful might feel threatened or uncomfortable by my success. And we literally like have this as sometimes a subconscious thought and it holds us back from reaching really big things in our lives. And so this can happen in all sorts of ways, but it also plays out when we're looking at you know, you might have just gotten a great promotion and you're thinking, well, I don't want to share that on Facebook because everyone's going to think I'm bragging. And so we hold ourselves back or hold, hold ourselves back from sharing things because again, we are worried what other people will think if we shine. And my whole philosophy around this is that you are not responsible for other people's feelings or their discomfort around your situation. Yes. Thank you. Could you say that louder? (laughs) I know. And we feel we take, women take so much responsibility for that and it's really inappropriate. And so we need to stop worrying about making other people comfortable. And I don't mean that in like a, don't be compassionate and empathetic way. I mean that don't worry about you're shining, making someone else feel small. Because if someone else feels small when you shine, that's about them. It's not about you. And you're not responsible for that. And if you take responsibility for that, you will never reach your full potential because you will constantly be shrinking and playing small right alongside the person who you're worrying about shining too brightly in front of. And so we have to let ourselves show up and shine and trust that a couple things are going to happen. First of all, there's going to be naysayers. So just be cool with that and be like, fine, they're not my people or they're not my people right now. And that's fine. And that's on them. It's not on me. But secondly, you're going to attract certain people who are going to love seeing you shine and they're going to be so excited for you and they will become your biggest cheerleaders. And I've seen this time and time again, people who I wouldn't have ever expected to step up for me have stepped up when I've done hard things and been like, oh my gosh, I am right there with you. I have your back. Let me know how I can support you. And it's all because I've let myself shine in a way that has felt uncomfortable, but it's also provided growth and provided an opportunity to connect with people who want to be supportive. Because generally speaking, people want to support us and help us. And so we have to give them spaces to do that. And then the next part is that when we shine and we let ourselves show up in bigger ways, we really do create space in the universe. And I call it making space for your future, but we do create space to do bigger and better things. And so we literally like open the door to the universe saying like, I'm ready, I'm ready for the next step. And so when I decided to start the podcast and ultimately sell my gym and go all in on the show and building a community around that, I was really vocal about it. And I let everyone know, like, I'm here to build a big business around this. And I'm here to like, you know, it's been a little over a year since I sold the podcast or since I sold the gym. And I've made it really clear, like, I'm here to build a multiple six figure business within a year of selling the gym. I'm here to have six streams of income around this show. Because if I have all of that, 
it means that I am being of massive service to women in really profound ways. And I'm not going to not share that because it might make someone else uncomfortable because the more I share it, the more opportunities come my way. And then other women get to see what is possible and we never know who we're inspiring. And so every time we step up and shine, it gives another woman permission to do the same. And those are the women that we want to be taking care of. The women who are looking for that inspiration and looking for to see other women doing the same. I love that. And I think that's like such great tips. And like, even for me as an entrepreneur and someone who does feel like sometimes I don't always share everything because I don't want someone to feel bad and I don't want someone to feel uncomfortable. And I'm like, Oh, well, I'll just share a bit of it. It's like, no, this is really important. You should share all of it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And again, because, and I notice now the people that I follow that are doing bigger things than me, they give me so much hope. I, it does not make me feel, it does not make me shrink. It makes, it gives me hope. When I see people doing really big things, I'm like, oh my gosh, if she can do that, so can I. Like, I'm so glad that she's doing that and talking about how she's doing it and talking about where she wants to go next. Because now I know that if she can do it, I can do it too. She's showing me what is possible for a female CEO to, to do and the growth that's possible for a female CEO of a small business or a massive corporation to, you know, what the trajectory can be. Yes. I love that. I mean, that's like so, 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 so well said. And like, I just love all these gems that you're sharing because I mean, hello, I'm getting like the shameless mom, like 2.0 right now, but like, (laughs) you know, love it. But I know my audience is going to love it even more. And, you know, I told you when I wanted to have you on that, like, for me, you know, stripped down was born out of kind of my postpartum depression, what we spoke about of losing your identity, all of that, kind of that real raw, you know, authentic self. And I love how much you've shared about all these amazing things that us as mamas can do. But before I let you go, I really wanted to ask you just a little bit about, you know, on kind of the, you know, more darker side, more real and raw side. I know that you found, you know, unexpected gifts in a six year fertility battle. Would you mind just kind of giving us a little bit about that. I'm going to have to have you back because I, we never have enough time, but I mean, I would just love, you know, to really share this because I've tried to encourage people with my show that like, this really is as real and raw as you can be. And it's good. And it's also the darkness and it's how we share it all. Yeah, definitely. So we, um, went through a bunch of infertility stuff before having my son. And so that took us, um, it was three years from the time we started to get pregnant until we had him. So it was about two years of getting pregnant and just a massive amount of decisions and diagnoses and expenses. And it was a lot. Um, and, and during that time I was at an age where all of my girlfriends were having their second babies. And so it was extremely emotionally challenging because I had girlfriends just getting pregnant left and right. And they already had one and they were having their seconds. And some of them were like, and these are all women I adore and love and none of them were rubbing it in my face, but they were like, Oh my gosh, pregnant a second time. This is so hard. And I was like, you don't even know what I would give. (laughs) Right. um, So that was, that was challenging for sure. And when we didn't know for a long time, if anything was going to work, that was, it was very hard to stay hopeful. And we did not tell, we told very few people that we were going through this. And so it just felt very lonely and extremely isolating. And I think especially for the woman my husband, and I think many men are like this. He was like, oh, well, bummer. It didn't work this month, but we'll try again next time. And I would be like crying for six days straight, but he was at work and like, he didn't know I was crying. And it was just, it was a very dark time. And this went on for a couple of years. And then we had my son and again, type A control freak, perfectionistic kind of gal. I immediately after we had my son was like, oh my gosh, do we have to go through all that again? 
are we going to have a second? Do we want to have a second? When do we start the process? And so then we started on this journey of trying to figure out if we were going to have a second, what would that look like? What were our chances based on everything we were up against the first time? And so we kind of, we decided we would try for a second, but we would, we were fine either way. Like we had already won the lottery with one child and then we ended up, so for anyone who's been through infertility, you know that there's like no end to how much money the industry of infertility will take from you very gladly. And so we at a certain point where we were like, we have to have like, we have to draw a line in the sand. Like where does this journey end? Because otherwise we are going to spend the rest of our lives just pouring money into a system that may or may not give us the outcome we want. And so we decided to draw a line in the sand. We were going to do IVF. It was three year, about three years, almost, it was pretty much exactly three years ago that we did it this final IVF round. And we went into it really positive. Like if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we're good. We are loving life with one kid. Like we're blessed either way. And then it didn't work. And I was devastated. And it's literally, it's been three years and it's only been in the last couple of months that I feel like I've really recovered from that. Um, so the gifts of that though, have been that in the last, so I shared everything three years ago when we were going through it because I was like, I'm good either way. So I'm fine. I can talk about this. And then when it didn't work, I had to like show up and as a total wreck and talk about it because I had promised I would. And the gifts that came from that were just so many connections with women who had been through similar situations and circumstances and an opportunity to share my story in so many different ways and so many capacities and connect with other women just about around so many things related to this topic. Um, it's been a huge part of what's made me a shameless mom. And so I can't underestimate how much it's given me, even though it's been really, really hard and it's created space for me to build something that I never could have envisioned. I could have never envisioned this five years ago. And here I am today. And a lot of the reason this platform is what it is, is because I started out talking about this huge journey around infertility. And so I think that sometimes when we're going through the hardest things in our lives, we don't see the hope, we don't see the silver linings. And then we can look back and be like, oh, wait so many big, huge, great things came out of that, even though it was really hard. And even though, you know, maybe the outcome wasn't what I wanted, there's so many gifts around it. And that is hugely beneficial. And, and it's a lesson for all of us. And so that's kind of, that's where we're at today with it. And it's been, it's been a huge blessing. And we've also, I will, the final thing I'll say about it is that it created space for us to make a commitment that if we're not going to have a second child, we will live a life we couldn't have otherwise had. And so like we've taken my son to Europe twice in the past two years, we spent two weeks in Portugal this last spring. And we were like, we wouldn't have done that if we had, if that IVF had worked two, three years ago, we wouldn't have gone to Europe with a six-year-old and a two-year-old. So we're doing a bunch of stuff now that we know we couldn't have done um, if we had had a second child. So we're really embracing that attitude. We spent the whole winter, all of like my son and I learning how to ski and we're like, we're going to be a skiing family. Again, we couldn't have done that if we had a one and a half year old last winter. Right. So really taking advantage of those opportunities as well has been a huge gift. Right. And uh, good for you for like finding, you know, those silver linings and those gifts when still going through something so real and raw. And like, seriously, Sarah, like, I mean, my heart goes out to you with everything you're feeling, but good for you for just owning everything and for sharing it and being so real and raw because I appreciate that so much as a new mama and as someone who had, you know, who did share so much of my postpartum depression and everything I was going through and knowing how hard that is to show up an emotional wreck. I so appreciate that. Like, 
you know, you being such a badass woman and mom, like, did the same and continue to do the same. So, like, good for you. Like, you know, you're only being blessed more and more for it with Shameless Mom and everything you're doing. And if it is something, you know, you choose to want down the road, I'm, I'm sure, you know, those blessings will come too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. There's always options. I mean, and that was comforting too. I was like, there's so many ways to expand a family and build a family. Right. This doesn't have to be, the, this is the end for now. Who knows what the future holds? So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No. And, th- and thank you for sharing that. I, I really appreciate yeah. that. So I know I have to let you go because real mom, like you have to go get your little one, but is yes. there anything else you'd want to leave my audience with before I let you go and go ahead and plug yourself? I'll have it of yeah. course in the show notes too. Sure. Um, so I think the thing I want to leave you all with is that there is an epidemic among women and moms, especially of isolation, loneliness, depression, and anxiety. And this is because we're not connected to people that we can be our truest selves with. And so if you're looking for a place to connect with those, with women, find women who are at a similar place, like get on Facebook and find people in your neighborhood or in your city who have kids the same age as yours. Get in the neighborhood Facebook groups and say like, Hey, I have a one-year-old and three-year-old who wants to meet every Wednesday at the park down the street. Really seek out people who are in similar situations to you because those are going to be the most valuable connections that you can have. Um, we have multiple communities through the Shameless Mom Academy. So if you start listening to the show, you'll hear you know how you can get tied in. We have a free Facebook group for moms that's at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. Um, and so we have tons of moms in there, and that's a really safe place for moms to connect, ask for support, you know, just share wins if they want to, share losses and dramas and traumas. So finding that place where you can be dialed into other women and connect in real and genuine ways, I think is the most important thing. And then from there, you can start to see the potential and hope around building a life outside of sometimes what can feel like a trap of motherhood, um, just because it is big and it is heavy and it is overwhelming. So connecting with other moms is my biggest takeaway and looking for places to do that. So I talk about all sorts of ways to do that on the show all the time. So check out the show. If we're on any podcast app um, at the Shameless Mom Academy. Thank you. That's so true. And like, so well said, and I'm going to join the shameless mom community. I can't wait. And obviously when this airs, I will put in your group too. Sarah, thank you so much. This has been so uplifting and just like, so good to hear. I know everyone else is going to be like, Oh my God, you are like singing my prayers right now. Like, thank you for being you. And thank you for being on. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Allie. Thank you. Until next time. Cheers. Bye. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Liz. And we host the Mom Deconstructed podcast. We interview moms to find out the real story of their mothering journey. Motherhood is the most difficult job there is, but unless we allow ourselves to create community and accept the help of others, it can be a very lonely endeavor. Let's get beyond the superficial, delve into the dreams that inspire us, the struggles that test us, and the conversations that connect us. You can listen to Mom Deconstructed anywhere you get your podcasts from the Parents on Demand Network and at momdeconstructed.com.